Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. Well, what a difference a week makes, or maybe an economic report. You know, the two big reports that everybody seems to focus on are the GDP numbers and the jobs numbers. And, you know, it seems that the weaker the economy is, as measured by GDP, the more jobs somehow the economy seems to create. We got the jobs report for July. On Friday, and just a week earlier, we got the GDP for the second quarter. And as I spoke about on the last podcast, that number was basically half of what Wall Street had been anticipating, less than half. They were looking for, I think, what, 2.4 or 2.6, and we got 1.2. But even worse, we went back and revised down the prior two quarters to below 1%. So that very weak number got people talking about, oh, the the Fed can't raise rates, the economy is weaker than we thought, are we slipping back into recession? And now fast forward to a week, and we get a non-farm payroll report that is higher than anticipated. And now all of a sudden, people start talking about September rate hikes again, which is so ridiculous. Although, obviously, with the stock market on Friday rising to a new record high, I doubt the equity traders actually believe that Friday's jobs report is going to produce a rate hike, yet it doesn't stop all the financial journalists writing about how this confirms that the recovery is on track and the Fed could raise rates. This jobs report doesn't confirm anything. First of all, the expectation was for a gain of 185,000 jobs, and that followed the surprisingly strong uh, 287,000 jobs that we gained in the month of June. And I had thought probably they might uh, revise that downward since it was so high. In fact, they revised it up to 292. And the uh, number for this month was 255,000, which was well above estimates. The unemployment rate, though, was supposed to drop down to 4.8. That didn't happen. It held steady at 4.9. 
but still below uh, 5%. The labor force participation rate did manage to tick up ever so slightly from 62.7 to 62.8, but still a very, very uh, low number. Average hourly earnings arose by 0.3. That's what was expected. Uh, overall, everybody was looking at this uh, jobs report as if it was, uh, uh, you know, strong across the board and indicative of a healthy economy. But once again, rather than reflecting a strong economy, all these jobs numbers do is reflect the transformation of the economy from full time to part time work. Because remember, the jobs numbers do not differentiate between full-time and and part-time work. And so when you're just measuring the number of jobs and not looking at the quality or the number of hours worked per job, you get a distorted view of the true strength of the labor force. And in fact, there was a very, very large seasonal adjustment that positively impacted these numbers. And I don't know where they come up with some of these adjustments. And more often than not, they're wrong. I think that's what happened with some of the GDP numbers and why they had to make such big uh, revisions. A lot of that had to do with seasonal adjustments. So who knows if uh, the big job number from this month or even last month are going to hold up. They may not uh, you know, uh, stand up over time as there's more scrutiny on a lot of these assumptions. But again, if you look at the jobs and where the jobs were created, the biggest uh, number, 53,000, comes in professional business services and temporary help. I'm not really sure how many of them were temporary help. Uh, but leisure and hospitality, number two, these are very, very low-paying jobs in the leisure and hospitality sector. That's 45000 Government, unfortunately, added 38000 That was a pretty big jump for government jobs. The last thing we want is more government workers. They're not going to produce anything, and the rest of us have to pay their salaries. So the last thing we want to see is uh, a bigger payroll at the federal level or even state and local level because that's a burden on the economy. Everybody else has to pay their salaries, has to support uh, those individuals. Education and health care, again, very, very low-paying jobs. That's number three, 36,000 uh, jobs there. And even temporary health services added 17,000. Retail trade added almost 15,000. You know, these are the bulk uh, jobs. I mean, if you look at the higher paying jobs, manufacturing somehow managed to gain 9,000. Not very much. Wholesale trade, uh, 1.7,000. And mining and logging, once again, lost about 7,000 jobs. You know, those are much higher paying jobs. A guy loses his job in the mining industry and he gets a job in uh, food services industry, that is a huge step down in the income levels. Of course, all of the fanfare surrounding this better-than-expected uh, jobs number, basically, if you look at all of the other anecdotal evidence that keeps coming out, it certainly doesn't look like we're producing a lot of jobs. In fact, you know, we got the trade deficit numbers that also came out on Friday very little attention uh, paid to that, but the trade deficit jumped to a new 10-month high. The number was much worse than had been anticipated. The deficit, which was expected to be $43 billion, which was an increase from the $41 billion from the previous month, it ended up going up to $44.5 billion. That's a pretty big jump. That is almost a billion higher than the top-end estimate of what the deficit would be. 
Now, of course, this is going to weigh down on second quarter GDP, which was already, you know, reported at 1.2 based on the size of this trade deficit. You know, there's a good chance that the GDP just on that might be revised slightly below 1%. But of course, there's other bad economic news that has been coming out. But, you know, if we have more people employed, why aren't we producing more stuff? Well, because the people who are employed aren't employed in goods producing industries. Therefore, when they take their paychecks and they buy something, they're buying something that is imported. You know, by the way, also on Friday, we got another piece of news that should question uh, the reliability of this uh, jobs report, and that is consumer credit. Consumer credit uh, grew at its slowest pace in four years. Now, I think it's a good thing that consumer credit is slowing down, consumer credit growth, because I don't think we should have consumer credit. I think it is a waste of scarce savings. Not that we have much savings, but you don't want to borrow money to consume. You want to borrow money to produce, because when somebody borrows money to produce, they have a means of repaying the loans. If a businessman borrows money to buy some equipment that increases the productivity of his workers, the loan, the interest and the principal are repaid based on the added income that is generated from the increased productivity. That's smart, right? If you can borrow $10,000 and by borrowing $10,000, you get an extra $20,000 of profits, well, you can pay off the $10,000 loan out of your increased profits and the borrower is better off. The lender is also better off because he got his money back and he got interest. So everybody benefits, the lender and the borrower. But if you borrow money to consume, if I borrow money and go out and take a vacation, the vacation doesn't generate any income uh, to repay the debt. Or if I borrow money to buy a new uh, big screen TV, that TV doesn't generate any cash flow. I mean, it's not like it's I'm, I'm selling tickets and my neighbors are coming over to watch my television and it's going to give me any cash flow. So to the extent that I borrow money to consume, the only way that I can repay the debt is to consume less in the future because I have to repay the debt plus interest. So it's not a win. It's, it, it is a loss for the borrower because ultimately consumer loans diminish your consumption unless you end up defaulting on the loan, in which case you screw the creditor. So either the borrower or the lender is going to lose when it comes to consumer credit. Meanwhile, since credit is not unlimited, it is scarce to the extent that consumers are borrowing. That means there's a smaller pool of savings available to finance capital investment. And it's the capital investment that grows the economy. So consumer credit is a bad thing. It's unfortunate that the U.S. government encourages it. But when you have a bubble economy, and everything is based on people spending money and there's no good jobs. Well, the only way they can spend money is to go deeper into debt. And that is what's going on. But if you look at the numbers that we got for June, the reason there was a big drop in consumer credit was because there was a big drop in the rate of increase of auto loans. Now, both auto loans and student loans are at record highs in June. But the pace of increase has slowed markedly, and I've talked about that on the last couple of podcasts. We've got a lot of evidence coming out that suggests that auto sales are really, really slowing down. Now, why is that? If we're creating all these jobs, uh, then why aren't the newly employed workers buying new cars? Most likely because if they are getting a job, it's not a high enough pay to afford a new car. Meanwhile, credit card debt 
really spiked up. Now, I know there are going to be people who are going to say, you see, that's a good sign that credit card debt is going up because, see, people are getting jobs. And now that they have jobs, they're confident about their ability to repay their loans. So they're going to go out and buy some new stuff on their credit card because of the confidence that they have from having a new job, except that retail sales have been very weak. Uh, not only at the department stores, and we got more bad earnings uh, from a bunch of uh, retailers again this week, uh, but I mentioned last on the last podcast about the big weakness in, in restaurant sales. So it doesn't look like consumers are rushing out uh, to buy more stuff on their credit cards. To me, what is more likely is that because there are so few new jobs really being created, and to the extent that jobs are being created, they're just low-paying part-time jobs that replace the higher-paying full-time jobs that are being destroyed, more consumers are relying on their credit cards now than ever before to buy the very basic necessities of life. If you look at the data on income, income is barely rising. Savings are now falling. We're at multi-year lows again on the savings rates. So consumers are still spending, but their savings are falling and their incomes are stagnant. How are they managing to do this? Well, they're using their credit cards. They're relying more on plastic. But the fact that Americans have to borrow more money to pay the bills is not a sign of a vibrant, growing economy. In fact, it's a sign of the reverse. You know, earlier in the week, we got the number for factory orders, and factory orders were down, but they were not down quite as much as had been the consensus. They were looking for June factory orders to drop 1.8%. They, they only dropped 1.5%, but, you know, they revised upward the decline from the prior month to from down 1 to down one2 so still, if you if you factor in the revisions, I think it was just as bad as had been forecast. But, you know, if you look at the year over year, factory orders are down 5.6 percent. That's a big drop. But more importantly, this is the 20th month in a row that year over year factory orders have declined. I mean, it's almost two solid years. This is an all time record. I mean, even during a recession. We have not gone through a period of time where year-over-year factory orders have declined this many months in a row. So again, you know, if we're if we have all these jobs that are being created, why are we not getting more orders at American factories? And all of the anecdotal evidence seems to reject the idea that we have a strong economy that's creating jobs. But I think it's it's very suspicious. You know, the the main number that people look at is the jobs number. They look at the unemployment rate and they talk about job creation. The GDP numbers, I mean, have really taken a back seat. The most important political number, the number that Barack Obama wants to brag about, the number that Hillary Clinton wants to run on are the jobs numbers. What is the unemployment rate? How many jobs are we creating? And it's uh, very coincidental that that happens to be the only number that comes out good. I mean, almost all the other numbers are weak. And then you get this strong jobs number and everybody all of a sudden thinks, wait a minute, I guess the economy is much stronger than we thought. Look at all this job creation. I've said before, the jobs numbers are the outlier. So there's obviously something wrong with that data point when all the other data points seem to confirm the weakness in the economy. And then you have this one lone outlier that rejects that and says, oh, the economy must be strong. Don't question all the other numbers. Question the jobs number and what is wrong there. And as I said many times, I think 
the the movement of workers to part time is just skewing up these numbers, as are the assumptions, the birth death numbers, where the Labor Department just assumes that businesses are being created because they assume the economy is growing and a growing economy will create businesses. But if those assumptions are wrong, if the economy is weaker than the statisticians are assuming, then the jobs that they believe are being created are not being created. In fact, jobs are more likely being lost than created. So between that and between all the part-time jobs, you know, you can't even believe these numbers. The numbers are all skewed up. And, you know, even in the, in the hours worked, you look at the average hours worked, and it's, let's say, 34 and a half uh, hours a week. That is a measure of how many hours a worker works per week, not how many jobs he has. You know, if you work for one employer and you work for 40 hours, you work 40 hours. If you have four jobs where you work 10 hours apiece, well, that's still 40 hours. You know, the problem is, too, though, when somebody has multiple jobs, they have multiple commutes. Usually their jobs are not at the exact same location. So they have a lot of downtime. You know, they have to get from one job to another job. They're not getting paid for that. You know, and they have to pay the cost of doing that. I mean, most workers would rather have one job, you know, show up at one location, stay there all day and then go home. People don't want to be bouncing around from job to job because there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of slippage there where people are really working. Right. If you're just going from one location to another location, I mean, you're not it's not leisure time for you getting back and forth to work and you just have more and more commuting time. So this doesn't even get get measured, but it is it is a reflection of, uh, you know, reflected in a falling standard of living. You know, another news story that I read during the week that really shows the weakness in the economy was heavy truck orders. These are these big trucks that, you know, where everything gets shipped around the country. The orders for these big rigs are now at a six year low. It's the lowest since 2010. I read through this article about all of these cancellations where companies had ordered trucks and now they're canceling their orders. Why are they doing that? Well, because they were optimistic. They believed the president. They believed the Fed. They thought the economy would recover. And so they thought they were going to need all these trucks. And so they ordered the trucks. But as it turns out, they don't need them because the recovery is not as strong as they thought. So they're canceling their orders. Now, if we have all these jobs... Why aren't these newly employed people buying stuff and why aren't trucks shipping this stuff? Because you can't buy what doesn't get shipped. So everything has to get shipped somewhere. And this is all this anecdotal evidence that the economy is much, much weaker than is generally believed. Now, the market's reaction to this uh, stronger than expected jobs number. I mentioned earlier that we had record highs in the U.S. stock market averages. Now, of course, year to date, the gains are nothing to write home about. It's not spectacular. And, you know, just about maybe just a handful of hedge funds that are even managing to beat the S&P this year, even though it hasn't risen uh, that much. But most people are underperforming. But the fact that the markets went up in response to this number, I think, shows me that they know that the Fed's not going to be hiking rates in September based on this number. Because believe me, if the stock market thought that this put that rate hike on the table, they would have been selling. 
because good news is bad news when it comes to the stock market, because the only thing propping up the stock market is cheap money. And in order to keep the cheap money flowing, the news has to be bad. If the news really is good and the cheap money goes away, well, then you knock out the props uh, beneath the market. We saw that in January in response to that one tiny rate hike in December when people thought that more rate hikes were coming. But if you look at the reaction in gold, now last month when we got the stronger than expected non-farm payroll number, gold sold off but then quickly recovered its gains. That didn't happen this time. Gold dropped about 10 bucks, 12, maybe actually about 15 bucks right away. Then it rallied, you know, tried to, you know, maybe down about $9 and then it couldn't rally anymore and it ended up closing off about $25. But given that gold was practically at a new high for the year before the number, and silver, I think, was at a high for the year uh, before the number, the fact that these markets pull back is not a surprise. What shows me that the markets are not really anticipating a rate hike is the fact that gold was not down 50 bucks or 60 bucks. It was only down 25, and it fell uh, from a very, very high level. You know, so despite the decline, you know, we still closed at 1335.40 on the week. Silver, though, was down 65 cents, but still 1966 is still a relatively high price for silver relative to where it's been trading uh, during the year. So, yes, a pullback is to be expected when you get a number that's much stronger than expected. But the fact that these metals did not get beaten up even more considering how high they were, and considering all the talk, right? Oh, no, this is a game changer. This puts the rate hike back on the table. Again, it shows that the Fed is losing its credibility as the markets realize it doesn't really matter what the jobs number is. The Fed can't raise interest rates. In fact, what happened during the week was another central bank, the Bank of England, cut rates, cut them. This is the first time they've done that in, I don't know, five or six years. I forget the exact number. But their interest rates are down to 0.25%. So basically their rates are now as low as ours, right? Because we went up from zero to 0.25 and now they went down from a half to 0.25. This is the lowest interest rates in the UK have ever been. They've never been at zero yet, but they're basically there, right? 0.25. And they also surprised the markets by announcing a increase in their quantitative easing program. So now they're going to be printing even more money to buy even more bonds. In fact, they're even going to be buying corporate bonds. And again, if you listen to what they were saying to justify their rate hike, the most important reason for it was to ensure that they meet their inflation targets, meaning to make sure that the cost of living rises sufficiently uh, to meet the bank's target. I mean, think about this. Look at how much the pound has lost value since the Brexit vote, right? A big drop in the value of the pound. I mean, you think the last thing that the central bank should be worried about is not having enough inflation, right? Because a weaker pound means that you now need more pounds to buy things. So a weak pound is already increasing the cost of living for Brits. And certainly to the extent that they want to travel anywhere, uh, those costs are going to be more and more expensive as the British pound uh, buys fewer units of other currencies. Certainly anything that the British want to import is going to be more expensive. And anything they produce with imported components is going to be more expensive. The cost of energy is going up, commodity prices. So you would think the last thing that they should be worrying about 
is not enough uh, inflation, right? Not enough of an erosion in the value of their currency, not a big enough increase in the cost of living. No, these morons at the Bank of England want to make sure that prices rise even faster, that the value of the pound diminishes even more. And so they are promising to print more money to create more inflation. You know, what really they need to be doing in the U.K., is cutting back on government regulation. Yes, they're going to get away from all the regulations, supposedly, of the EU, although I have no idea how long this uh, Brexit process is going to take. But that's what they should be doing to shore up the British economy. They need fewer regulations. They need less government spending. They need lower taxes. They need higher inflation, like a hole in the head, right? (laughs) The last thing that's going to benefit Brits is a rising cost of living. I mean, they seem like they're going to get that anyway, thanks to the depreciation in the value of the British pound. Now, by the way, the British pound probably is bottoming out here uh, against other fiat currencies because it did have a big drop because, you know, they're not the only fiat currency where they're printing a lot of money trying to create inflation. But it shows you the foolishness of the mindset. Yet nobody questions this. You know, they have these press conferences, all these reporters write about it, and nobody talks about why this is so important to the central bank. Why, with all the things that they could be worrying about, is the thing that worries them the most that the cost of living won't rise fast enough, that uh, people in Great Britain, even though they're going to have to pay more for things, that they're not going to have to pay 2 or 3% more, that only paying 1% more is a problem, but it'll be great if they can only pay 2 or 3% more. Nobody even questions how ridiculous this theory is, yet it justifies uh, slashing interest rates, printing all this money, And again, if lowering interest rates worked, they would have already worked. You shouldn't have to be at 0.25 if it worked. You know, if you start cutting rates and they're at 5 or 6% and you get down to 1% and you haven't had the desired effect, the logical thing is to say maybe this doesn't work. Maybe we should try something different. Maybe just cutting interest rates isn't really the key to economic growth. No, they just keep on going. And then when they get to a quarter, and if it doesn't work, they go to zero. And then if zero's not low enough, they go negative, right? They will never acknowledge a mistake, right? It's the definition of insanity. You repeat the same thing over and over again, and every time you do it, you expect a different result. Why do these central banks expect that a new rate hike will turn out to be any more effective than the last rate hike, right? It's hope springs eternal when it comes to QE and rate cuts, just like with the— the Atlanta Fed and their their forecasts of of GDP. You know, I mentioned earlier in the podcast the the GDP numbers that we got for the the, the first the second quarter and the reductions from the prior two quarters. Over the last nine months, the U.S. economy has grown at just under one percent. And from the data that has come out, it looks like the one point two percent that we got in the second quarter is going to be revised down as well. I think there's a good chance that that's going to be revised to sub 1%. But as they always do, the Atlanta Fed now that the second quarter is in the history books, or at least the first estimate, now they start uh, estimating what they think the third quarter GDP is going to be. And you know where they are? 3.8%. 3.8% is the Atlanta Fed's prediction for the third quarter. Where are they getting such a pie-in-the-sky optimistic number? You know, but this is what they do every quarter. 
right? They estimate this big number, and everybody gets real excited. Oh, we're going to have all this economic growth. The Atlanta Fed, 3.8%. And then what do they do? They spend the rest of the quarter ratcheting down their estimates. And in fact, just before we got the 1.2% number for the second quarter, a day or two later, the Atlanta Fed slashed their their projections down to 1.8. And remember, as I said, Back then, they didn't slash them enough. And of course, I ended up being right on that. But they always do this. They start up high. Everybody gets real excited. And then as the data comes out, and of course, the data is weak, they have to ratchet it down. But what makes them so optimistic in the first place? Why would they assume after three quarters where GDP growth averaged 1%, why would they assume that the third quarter is going to be 3.8? Based on what? In fact, if you look at all the other anecdotal evidence, some of which I've discussed on this podcast, there is nothing out there that would suggest anything like 3.8%, yet that's the, the guesstimate that they start out with. Obviously, again, I think there's a lot of political influence on these estimates to try to be optimistic, to try to put a, a positive spin on this. Now, I want to talk a little bit about politics and, you know, this has been a, a difficult week, I guess, for the mainstream uh, GOP and Donald Trump. Apparently, there's all kinds of rumors out there that a lot of the mainstream establishment Republicans are very unhappy with Donald Trump now that the polls seem to be going in the other direction. And, uh, you know, they I, I, I mean, they're basically in, in, in panic mode. But it seems to me that the one thing that the mainstream Republicans fear more than Donald Trump is Gary Johnson, right? Because you would think you've got all of these Republicans who are very upset at Donald Trump. They say he's not a real Republican. He doesn't represent our views. And some of them are actually saying that they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton, right? Because Donald Trump is, is so far from what we believe in, right? Or maybe it's because of protectionism or because he's a bigot or he says things that are that are so offensive, right? That I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton as opposed to Donald Trump. But why aren't any of the dissatisfied Republicans coming out in favor of the libertarian ticket? On the libertarian ticket, you have two former Republican governors. You have Gary Johnson of New Mexico and William Weld of Massachusetts. They were both very successful governors. They both governed as Republicans in Democratic states. You would think that if you were a Republican and you didn't want Donald Trump, rather than going to Hillary Clinton, you would you would go for the libertarian ticket. Why aren't they? I mean, is it is it really that Republicans have more in common with a real left wing Democrat, a liberal Democrat, than a free market Republican running on a libertarian platform. Because remember, the libertarian platform is about limited government. It's about a lot of the things that the Republicans claim to support, right? Getting government out of our lives, smaller government, less government spending, fewer regulations, lower taxes. That is what the Libertarian Party is promising. Yet the Republicans are saying, no, we want to reject that. We would rather vote for Hillary Clinton, who's promising more government, more government spending, higher taxes. We as Republicans, we have more in common with Hillary Clinton 
than we do with Gary Johnson or William Weld. And we're willing to overlook the fact that she's a criminal, the fact that she's dishonest, uh, all of her record of dishonesty and the most recent scandal with her emails and her lying to Congress and her jeopardizing national security. We are willing to overlook all of that, and we're going to vote for her anyway, because Voting for Gary Johnson or William Weld, well, that's just unthinkable. We couldn't possibly vote for people who want to cut government, right? We couldn't possibly vote for people who want less government spending, who want lower taxes, you know, who really want these things. So we're going to vote uh, for the Democrat. I mean, does it make any sense that this would happen? Now, some people could say, well— Maybe they like Gary Johnson, but they know it's a waste of vote, right? Because there's no way a third party could win. Oh, yeah, there is. There's a very easy way. In fact, if the Republican establishment really liked uh, the libertarian ticket, they would win. Gary Johnson could be the next president of the United States. And here's how. He doesn't have to win the popular vote because, remember, Our elections are not determined by who gets the most votes. It's the Electoral College. And in order to become president, you have to get a majority of the electoral votes. Now, here is how Gary Johnson could become president. Let's say that a lot of the the Republicans who were dissatisfied with Donald Trump publicly supported the Johnson-Well ticket. If that were to happen, then all of a sudden uh, the libertarian ticket would get a lot of publicity. They would get a lot of free media. They would also get a lot of donations. And they would be able to advertise more. They should be able to get their polling numbers up to 15%. And if they poll at 15%, they will be in the presidential and vice presidential debates. And now... Americans who are dissatisfied with either candidate, Americans who are dissatisfied with Hillary Clinton. There are a lot of Democrats who don't like Hillary Clinton. A fair number of them may be attracted to Gary Johnson and William Weld. There are a number of Republicans who don't like Donald Trump. They may vote for Gary Johnson or William Weld. So I think if they get into the debates, they could become they could win. Gary Johnson can win. Now, how? Not because I think that they're going to win the majority of electoral votes, but I think that they could deny one of the other candidates a majority. You see, if Gary Johnson and William Weld can pick up enough states, maybe five or six states, they don't even have to be big states. Uh, Maybe some of the states out in in, in the, the Midwest or the Southwest where they're already popular, you know, maybe William Weld, who knows, maybe he can pick up his home state. Gary Johnson would probably certainly carry his home state. But if they could get enough electoral votes in a close race, right, assuming that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are pretty close, right, it's possible and maybe even probable that if the libertarians get five, six, seven states, that neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump will have a majority. And then what happens? The House of Representatives decides the election. They choose from among the three candidates. Now, the House of Representatives is controlled by Republicans. But obviously, there's Democrats get to vote also. Now, 
who are the Democrats going to support? If they really don't want to support Donald Trump, there's no point in supporting Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton's not going to get the votes from the Republicans. Their only choice, if they don't want Donald Trump, would be to vote for Gary Johnson. And on the Republican side, none of the Republicans are going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Some of them might vote for Donald Trump. But if there's enough Republicans who really don't want Donald Trump, they really think he's as terrible as they say, what's the alternative? It's not Hillary Clinton. It's Gary Johnson. And so it seems to me that if the Republicans really are unhappy with Donald Trump, their candidate is Gary Johnson. He could win. He could easily win this thing based on the Electoral College. Now, I'm sure they know that. And so why aren't they getting behind Gary Johnson and William Weld? Because they don't want them to win. Because the Republicans would rather have a Democrat in the White House, even one as crooked as Hillary, than have honest libertarians in the White House. Because what scares them more than Donald Trump is a third party actually winning. Because right now they have this dual uh, party duopoly, right? They have the Demopublicans. The most important thing to a Republican is that if he doesn't win, then the Democrat wins. And the most important thing for a Democrat is that if a Democrat doesn't win, that it's a Republican because they want to keep the game to themselves. They don't want the country to go to a three-party system. They don't want to share power with another party. And so despite all the rhetoric, they're all part of the same team, right? They're all the Demopublicans, and they don't want any outsiders coming in. So even though there is a viable path to preventing Trump from being president, if in fact that's what you want to do, Nobody wants to take that path because it involves uh, Gary Johnson and William Weld as a third party, right? As, um, as libertarians, they do not want to validate the libertarian party. They don't want to raise it up enough so that they have to worry about the libertarian party in future elections and not just presidential elections. I mean, if there was a libertarian president and the party were legitimized and more people knew about it, what about local races? What about in the House or the Senate or maybe in state races, right? That's the last thing the Republicans want is to open up that door. They don't want to have to worry about, about the libertarians. So they would rather sacrifice whatever principles they claim that they believe in when it comes to limited government and instead embrace uh, Hillary Clinton. I mean, they, I mean, it doesn't even matter who the Democratic nominee is, how corrupt they are, how far to the left they are. It could even be Bernie Sanders, right? If Bernie Sanders was preaching socialism, Republicans would still be saying, well, let's vote for him. But Bernie Sanders, rather than even acknowledge the existence of Gary Johnson and William Weld. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? 
If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.